Hi, good evening and thank you all for coming tonight. My name is Christina Degerstorf and I'm the program coordinator for the Royal Oak Foundation. And I'd like to welcome members and supporters of the Royal Oak and the Boston Athenaeum. And a big thank you to the Athenaeum who graciously co-sponsored and hosted this evening's lecture. And especially to Victoria O'Malley and Elsa Vernon who make the events here run so perfectly. I'd also like to thank Freemans for sponsoring Royal Oaks Boston Lectures as well. As you could see from our slide loop uh, before the program, the Royal Oak Foundation is the American membership affiliate of the National Trust for England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Our lectures seek to raise awareness and uh, advance the important work of the Trust, as well as highlight the best and uh, recent scholarship on British art, architecture, gardens, and of course history. We are currently fundraising for the National Trust Library at Blickling in Norfolk, and we have information on the front table outside. And I want to let you know that our le next lecture in Boston is here at the Athenaeum on uh, May 16th, and that's going to be on Churchill and the letters between him and his mother. And now I will turn over to Peter Mongeau, who will introduce tonight's speaker. Good evening, everyone. I'm Peter Mongeau. I'm a proprietor and the moderator of the World War II discussion group here at the Boston Athenaeum. It's my pleasure to welcome you and our speaker, Sonia Purnell, whose talk is presented in partnership with the Royal Oak Foundation. Before we begin, please note the two emergency exits marked at the front and the rear of the room, and please take a moment to silence your cell phones. Thank you. I've been asked to mention two upcoming events. The first, next Wednesday, April 17th, is the Athenaeum's Conservation Evening. I'm told there's still time to register for this annual event where you can view precious library holdings in need of special care and sponsor their treatment so they will last for generations to come. Then, on April 23rd, this room will once again host the New Yorker editor Mary Norris for a talk titled Greek to Me, Adventures of a Comma Queen, the sequel to her 2015 New York Times bestseller. Now I'm pleased to introduce Sonia Purnell, a journalist who has worked at The Economist, The Telegraph, The Sunday Times, her book Clementine, The Life of Mrs. Winston Churchill, published as First Lady in the UK, was chosen as the Book of the Year by the Daily Telegraph and The Independent, and it was a finalist for the Plutarch Award. Her first book, Just Boris, was long listed for the University of College of London-based Orwell Prize for political writing of outstanding quality. Her latest book and topic for tonight, A Woman of No Importance, was published last month. It tells the story of Virginia Hall, who talked her way into Winston Churchill's Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. She became the first Allied woman deployed behind enemy lines in a powerful yet little-known heroine of World War II. Reviewers have called the book riveting, fascinating, and electrifying. A film adaptation is currently in development at Paramount. Please join me in the Royal Oak Foundation in welcoming Sonia Purnell.
Well, good evening, and thank you all very much for coming. I'm so pleased to be here. It's such a beautiful place and very, very exciting. Um, Boston is one of my favourite US cities, I have to confess, and indeed one of Virginia Hall's. In fact, her adult life um, began here. Just one thing I'd like to say, actually, although the book came out in the UK last month, in the US it came out a mere two days ago. So you're, you're you know, on the, on the crest of the wave, ladies and gentlemen, um, as always in Boston, of course. Um, um, so, yes, Virginia Hall came here to study at Radcliffe. She went to several different universities. Radcliffe happened to be the first one. And she met two people there, um, uh, Jean and Marie-Louise Julien, uh, French actually, but they went back to France later on. She met them during the war. She made great friends here. She often made great friends wherever she went. And it's interesting that she tended to keep them really for the rest of her life and that these friends became extremely loyal. And in fact, the Julians who she met here would put their lives on the line for her during the war. Why did I write a book? Why is it called A Woman of No Importance? Well, she was repeatedly rejected and dismissed as a woman really of no importance. But in fact, I can tell you that the Gestapo during the Second World War thought very differently they thought she was the most dangerous of all Allied spies. And in fact, in 1942, they sent out a signal saying we must find and destroy her. Her controllers in London, when she was a spy in wartime France, decreed that she had done nothing short of save Allied intelligence in France from extinction, their words, not mine, that she was almost embarrassingly successful, that more than half of the operations that went ahead, at least in the early years of the war, were entirely down to her, the ones that succeeded, that is. So why, is, why have we never heard of her? She's very little known. She was decorated by the French Republic, by a British king and an American president, all in secret, though. In fact, when I was researching her over the last three years, a labour of love, believe me. In fact, my husband got very cross because I was never around. I mean, you know, I just became consumed with this story. Lots of long days and long nights. She, it was as if Virginia was playing cat and mouse with me from the grave almost because quite often I'd get a great lead and I'd go off and get very excited and then discover that those documents had been lost or mislaid or somehow destroyed or, or burnt. This happened quite a few times. Fortunately, um, I was able to find copies of quite, quite a lot of those documents and two intelligence officers, former intelligence officers on both sides of the Atlantic were able to help me get some classified documents, declassified. So in the end, I was able to piece her story together from all sorts of different sources. One of my problems was that she had over 20 different code names, and no one before had ever worked out that Marie and Philomène and Camille and Nicolas and Diane and all these people were actually the same woman. She did all of those things, and it was a bit like a sort of giant organogram. I was trying to join it all up. Um, it was worth it in the end. It was a story that I simply couldn't believe how extraordinary it was. So let me just go back to the beginning and give you an idea as to why I thought it really was an amazing story. Okay, so her life...
began in, in Baltimore. They had um, this farm just outside Baltimore, Boxhorn Farm, no longer exists, I'm afraid. It's long since been demolished. Um, so this is the family farm where she spent a little time with animals. That was her fun thing. It's genteel rather than opulent. It didn't have central heating. They only had were burning stoves and that kind of thing. It pumped in the water from a local spring. The family had an apartment in Baltimore as well, but a rented one. But actually, a previous generation of Halls had been much more well-to-do. In fact, her grandfather had a house in downtown Baltimore, which apparently had a hallway so wide you were able to turn a coach and horses round in it. <laughs> whether anyone actually tried this out or whether it was just kind of hyperbole, I can't tell you, but that's what the family folklore said. But time that Virginia's father came along, Ned, the, the money wasn't in the same, you know, they didn't have the same amount of money anymore. He was a cinema owner and a banker and perfectly successful, but there just wasn't so much money around. He married his secretary, Barbara, and Barbara was desperate for the family to get back to those, you know, those former heights. Um, in fact, the family now call her a little bit snooty, perhaps because... Um, she uh, you know, had married well herself. She really wanted her daughter to do the same. So her great plan was for Virginia to marry an eligible young man with a considerable fortune and bring everyone back up to those social heights. Um, there was one problem with this. Virginia. <laughs> Virginia was a tomboy, <laughs> as you can see. Virginia liked to wear what I would call trousers and you would call pants, and she liked to sort of run around in the forest with, with a gun, shooting furry things and birds and stuff with her, with her father. And she liked riding on horseback, preferably without a saddle, and doing all those sorts of things that don't necessarily mean that you're going to marry an eligible young man. However, there were lots of eligible young men who quite wanted to marry her, but she treated most of them, I think it's fair to say, with disdain. She had her eyes cast on something far more exciting, a bigger future, one involving travel and adventure. And also animals. She really loved animals. Here she's making a hat out of birds. But one of the most famous things she did as a teenager was go into her high school, Roland Park Country School, with an unusual bracelet made out of live snakes. Um, this caused a little bit of a rumpus, as you can imagine. But actually, her classmates really loved her. They invited her in as class president, editor of the school yearbook, sports captain, and I don't know what the duties were of this post, but she was also class profit. Um, so she was a leader. They recognised that. She could be, in her own words, capricious and cantankerous, but there was something about her that made people want to follow her, even in those days, and that was a quality that she was going to have for a very long time. Anyway, as I said, off she went to Radcliffe, and under parental pressure, she did get engaged to an eligible young man, but then she found out that he'd been cheating on her, so she ditched him and definitely decided that a career was going to be a far more rewarding pursuit than one of these chaps. So there she is, rather glamorous, as you can see. Um, she, after Radcliffe, well, she didn't spend that long. She went to um, Barnard in, in, um, in New York. But really what she wanted to do was go abroad. So at the age of 20, and this is in 1926, it's not like now where you just get a, on a flight and you know, arrive at the other side a few hours later. 
she decided that she would go and study in Paris on her own um, during the time when it, it was the Les Années Folles. So it was a very exciting time to be in Paris. Women were terribly liberated, she felt, and they had the gasson, the androgynous figures, women wearing trousers, pants, a lot. It was quite a thing in France. It was also a great artistic, literary flowering jazz club she went to. There was no racial segregation and there was no prohibition. Life was very free indeed and a great deal of fun. And she certainly had a great deal of fun there. She then went and studied in Vienna. An exciting thing happened to her in Vienna. She did fall in love with a young Polish officer called Emil. She really was in love with him, but I'm afraid her mother, Barbara, didn't approve. Emil did not come from an eligible background. He didn't have a great fortune. In fact, I don't think he had a fortune at all. And Virginia was persuaded that she ought to um, cut this relationship off. Surprisingly, when you hear some more about Virginia, that she did that. Well, that's what she did. Something else happened in Vienna, though that was also really long-lasting. She carried a picture of Emile in her pocket for years afterwards, by the way. But something else that she noticed there was there began to be fascist mobs rampaging in the streets. There was political violence breaking out everywhere. Over the border in Germany, there started to be Nazi paramilitary um, rallies. Hitler was rising and rising in popularity. In Italy, Mussolini was already in power. Democracy was effectively abolished. Everywhere she looked around her, dark clouds were forming on the horizon. That glorious, joyous life that she'd known in Paris in particular, that wonderful artistic, cultural awakening, she felt was under threat. So she went, she went back to the US in the end to continue her studies. Um, and she... She felt more than ever that she wanted to become a diplomat, an ambassador, to be on the world stage, to do something about the threat from extremism, from the threat to democracy. By this point, she'd garnered some five different languages. She was a real linguist. The one problem was she never got rid of her American accent. There was something that she simply couldn't do. However... By now, she had a raft of qualifications, a clutch of languages. She was going to apply to the State Department. How could she fail? <laughs> yeah, the rejection was quick and brutal. It turned out there were only six women in 1,500 members of the diplomatic service, and Virginia was not going to be one of them. But she told her friend, well, if I can't go through the front door, I'll go through the back door. So she decided what she would do was to be a secretary, a desk clerk. So off she went to work in Warsaw, funny enough, where Emile had come from. We don't think that she saw Emile, but she must have thought about him. Of course, in Poland as well, great things were happening, frightening things were happening. Poland was squeezed between those two great powers, Russia and Germany. Again, she sensed the danger coming. But again, she applied to join the State Department, and this time they lost her exam papers. So she, off she went to Turkey, another posting. At least in Turkey, she was near the marshes where there was great sport. 
By this point, her father had died. After losing some more money in the Wall Street crash, he'd been under great stress, and one day he'd come out of his office and had a heart attack there, there, then there, on the sidewalk and collapsed and died. She was heartbroken, but she still had the gun that he had given her from those days when they used to go hunting together. So when she arrived in Turkey, these marshes, wonderful birds, flamingos, snipe, all sorts of things, she soon organised a hunting party to the marshes. It was a crisp, sunny, beautiful December day. Off they went. Now, I'm not a hunting person, but I'm told that snipe have a famously erratic pattern of flight. They're very difficult to hit. Um, as you can tell, Virginia was a competitive sort of person. She wanted to be the first to bag her snipe. Maybe that's why... She tripped on a wire fence running through the reeds in the marsh. As she fell, her foot was stuck. As she fell, she grabbed her gun. But unfortunately, she had not engaged the safety catch. She literally shot herself in the foot at point-blank range. Her friends gathered her quickly and took her to the local hospital. And at first it seemed that she would be okay. She seemed to rally, her foot seemed to be fine, it was heavily bandaged. But then it started to change colour, and so did the whole bottom of her leg. Well, they called quickly some American doctors in Istanbul and a nurse, but it took 24 hours in those days to get from um, the capital to where she was. Sorry, Istanbul to where she was. By the time they arrived, her leg quite obviously, had gangrene and it was racing up to the knee. Well, at this point, she was on the brink of death. There was only one way that she could be saved, and that was by sawing her leg off just below the knee of the left-hand side. She was 27. When she came to, her life seemed to be over. Here was this adventurous soul, this spirit who wanted to roam far and wide. And here she was in her local paper back home, The Baltimore Sun, being described as a victim. She never wanted to be a victim. She came back to the US where she was fitted with a prosthetic leg after several more operations to try and make it fit properly and to stop. She had that flesh-eating bacteria which was eating into her flesh. She kept, they kept having to cut it away. Again, she nearly died, but she pulled through and they fitted a new prosthetic. But have you any idea how primitive they were in the 30s compared with now? I managed to find a prosthetic historian in London at the Science Museum and he took me through exactly what they could do and what they couldn't do. You couldn't flex your ankle in the way that we can, nor could you lock it. But also, it, it um, was fixed your body with leather straps, straps around your waist and big buckles. And when it was hot and sticky, the leather chafed her skin until it bled, and her stump was still prone to infections. She got quite depressed back at home. The best thing that she could think of doing was going back to work. So she said to the State Department, I'll, I'll come back again as a desk clerk. So they said, OK, we'll, um, we'll send you abroad again. They chose the worst possible place for a new amputee. The place they chose was Venice. I don't know whether you've ever been there. Well, there are over 400 little bridges with steps up and steps down. Remember, she couldn't flex her ankle in the way that we can, nor could she lock it. This was a, 
an absolute nightmare for her. She was still getting used to having a prosthetic at all. But it's the point that we see how inventive Virginia was and how she was not going to give up. She was not going to let this affect her life in any way. Her work was exemplary. She worked harder than anyone else and she got around more than anyone else. So how did she do it? She bought a gondola. <laughs> her own gondola. And there is Angelo, her local friend, who rather gallantly used to stand behind her. I don't know whether you've been to Venice, but it can get quite choppy on those canals, particularly the bigger ones. She had a wooden leg, and she was standing on the back there, rowing. Um, this is a pretty brave thing to do. Unfortunately, Angelo was quite often there to catch her if she fell. But this is how she got around. Her bosses were astounded at how good she was at her work. They wrote glowing reports about her, saying she stood in for diplomats on many occasions and showed how capable she was, how she could be a diplomat. Take the exam again, they all said. So she applied to take the exam again. And the papers went all the way to Cordell Hull, the Secretary of State, who at this point, I don't think he was that you know, keen to have too many more women in his diplomatic service, he managed to unearth an obscure rule that everyone had forgotten about, barring amputees from being diplomats. Now, the Hall family had been quite well connected, and fortunately they had some quite powerful friends, one or two of whom wrote to President Roosevelt himself as we know himself, you know, confined to a reliance on a wheelchair. So some irony here, believe me. She was, they said, a gentlewoman of great intelligence, a patriot, someone who had exemplary track record and truly wanted to serve her country at a more exalted level. How could she possibly be held back, they said. Well, I found the memo from FDR to Cordell Hull saying, well, what about this Virginia Hall then? Cordell Hull ignored the glowing references from um, Venice, said she was really a woman of no importance and no particular talent. And yeah, she might make a fine career girl in the clerical grades. He also did not like the fact of being special pleading. She was punished after this. She was moved from Venice to Tallinn in, in Estonia, Baltic state, um, and made basically to answer the phone and file documents. This was as Europe was spinning towards war, exactly what she had been fearing for all these years. She was devastated. Her career was in obvious complete tatters. So she resigned from the State Department. Um, Estonia itself, of course, was also in a very sort of crucial place and was expecting to be invaded at any moment. And she wanted to tell the world about that, so she tried to file some stories to newspapers. But in the end, what she did was she wanted something more active. So rather than coming back to the United States, as you might expect her to do, this is what she did. She volunteered to drive an ambulance for the French army SSA stands for Service de Santé des Armées, so basically Army Health Corps. This was not at a peaceful moment, though. It was when Germany was invading. She drove ambulances 
on the front line under intense enemy bombardment, machine gun fire. She kept doing it when a lot of French soldiers were deserting their posts and running away because it was quite clearly hopeless. German forces were infinitely um, more astute, better equipped, were moving forward with lightning speed. She kept going when others did not. Ten million people were fleeing in the opposite direction. It was the biggest refugee ex exodus of all time. Virginia's ambulance was one of the few vehicles or people, and she was one of the few people going the other way towards the battlefield to pick up the wounded. Why did she do this? Why did she risk her life every single day? because it made her feel alive. She was useful again. She was at the center of action. People relied on her to do, to do something big, and she did it. There was no way she was going to fail. Absolutely no way. But of course, as we know, France eventually capitulated, well, quite quickly capitulated after six weeks or so, and she was demobilized. So did she come back to the United States in safety as her mother really wanted her to? I mean, she didn't even tell her mother she joined the SSA because she knew her mother would freak and her mother found out only about it afterwards. Um, so did she come back home to keep her mother calm? No, she thought about it certainly, but no, she didn't. What she decided to do was to go to Britain, because Britain seemed to be, what, the only European nation still standing up to Hitler, or at least trying, but it was fearing invasion imminently. So she thought, well, I might be able to do something there. So I will travel down through occupied France on my own, because you couldn't just cross the channel as you can now. You had to go down through Spain to Portugal and then come all the way around the, the long way, if you like, by line. It was the only way to get to Britain. So that's what she decided to do, so that she could offer her services there. And it was on the way when she was in a Spanish railway station, full of people, fleeing here, fleeing there, teeming with people. She went to find if she could get a ticket to um, Portugal so that she could catch a boat. And someone noticed this striking American and got into conversation with her and heard about the ambulances, heard about her crossing France by herself, heard about her desire to do more in the war effort. And this guy did something, the most important thing of his life. First of all, he made an incredibly astute judgment, which was that he had just met a force of nature and, you know, something, there must be some way that she could employ it. And then he thought, I know how. So he gave a little piece of paper with a phone number on it, said, this is a friend of mine in London. He might be able to help you in some way, so call him when you get there. So she got to London, and she called this guy, and he wasn't just some friend. He was actually a senior officer in SOE, Winston Churchill's new secret service, or Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare, some people called it. The idea was it, that um, very, very brave agents would go into occupied Europe and set it ablaze. They would fan the flames of resistance. They would um, embark on a campaign of sabotage, subversion, and spying. It was something that had never been done before, to set up networks in, in enemy countries with, with no um, existing apparatus to, um, to use at the beginning. The thing was, you see, that all British, all Allied spies had left France during and after Dunkirk. There were none left. Britain was fighting this war blind. It had no idea what was going on in France. It was completely dark as far as they were concerned. 
So they needed people to go in desperately, but there would be no backup. There would be no support system. And for a long time, there would be no direct communication with London either. It was incredibly dangerous. And funnily enough, there weren't that many people volunteering to do it. <laughs> Until Virginia came along. I mean, I'm not quite sure what they told her. But she certainly volunteered, and a plan was hatched where she would go into France with no backup, no support, or anything else. But she would go undercover as an American journalist, because this is a long time before Pearl Harbor. America wasn't in the war yet. She didn't have to do any of this. This was entirely her wanting to help. So they gave her a little bit of training. They, a burglar came in to teach her how to pick locks. Someone else told her how to replace dust on the surface if you remove something. Someone else told her that urine is a fantastic secret ink because it comes up much darker under heat, so you can see what someone's written. And they discovered that there was a little slot in her metal heel where microfilm documents, because you could compress documents into a much smaller version, could be slipped in very nicely, thank you. And just before she went, she was introduced to a number of different tablets. One bowl had benzedrine in it, amphetamines. You'll need this, they said. This, you'll, sleep will be a luxury all the time that you're in the field. I don't think she believed it at the time, but I think she took a few. She asked for a lot more pretty quickly, believe me. And the other bowl were K-pills, lethal cyanide ones in soluble little casings. If they were broken, you could add them to food and they would kill whoever ate the food in 45 seconds. You could hold them in the mouth and be fine if you swallowed them. If you bit them, you too would die in 45 seconds. These could be used, of course, if you were caught and being tortured or feared that you might talk if you were being tortured. So we know that she took a few of both, and we know that she had to ask authority for her license to kill, but she did, just like James Bond, have a license to kill. This is the only way, ladies and gentlemen, that she was like James Bond. She did not drive around in a flash Aston Martin, <laughs> or wear dinner suits, or indeed go on about his mar her martinis being shaken, not stirred, although she did actually drink martinis, it's true. Anyway, off she went um, into uh, wartime France, with no backup at all. And at that point, the French weren't really up for fighting back. Res resistance as such did not exist. They'd only just capitulated. This was an absolute shock to the system. People thought, well, I'll just try and get on with my life as best as I can. There were food shortages, shoe shortages, fuel shortages. I'll just try and get through that rather than fight back. Virginia's job was to change that, to fan those flames of resistance through really sheer force of personality. That's all she had at the beginning. The only way she could communicate with London was she wrote pieces for the New York Post, and in those articles were coded messages that London was able to pick up and get some idea what was going on. The fact that she filed one within 24 hours of arriving in France caused jubilation in London. Finally, there was a link to someone in the heart of France, even if such a sort of tenuous, complicated one.
But she had to get on with building up her networks. That was why she was there. She was brilliant at it. She recruited all sorts of people. Amongst the first were some nuns in a convent above Lyon because she couldn't find anywhere else to live. So she climbed the hill with Cuthbert, the name she gave to her wooden leg, no mean feat, as we know. She got to the top, there was nowhere else that she could stay, begged them to um, put her up. She had to be back at 6.30 at night in order to be allowed to stay, but recruited them immediately as her first safe house. She then moved back into the centre of Lyon and started recruiting others. One of her most spectacular recruits was one of the more unlikely ones, and unfortunately there is no picture, it seems, in existence of her. But what we do have is several contemporary accounts. She was unbelievably beautiful. She wore jewels and furs and silks and Paris couture. She had dark curls and an absolutely stunning face. She was the local brothel madam. <laughs> and she was one of the most heroic people you can ever think of. Germaine Garin, no one's ever heard of her either. But Virginia recruited her, and she was quickly making parts of her brothel into a safe house for um, downed pilots who needed to get out of France, for people who escaped from jail and um, capture from the Gestapo, to Jews, to other agents who came to join um, Virginia. And she also recruited the girls, or my tart friends, as Virginia called them in, in one signal back to London when she finally got a wireless operator. The fille de joie sounds nice in, France, in French, doesn't it? A lot of these women, before we judge them, by the way, were only prostitutes because their husbands had been captured or killed or they themselves had lost their jobs and their kids were starving and this was the only way that they could feed their kids. Some of them, for other reasons, were doing it. They were all kept very busy because German officers were told to go to brothels. It was thought that this would increase their aptitude as fighters. So there were a lot of German officers that came to Germaine Garin's um, brothel, and the prostitutes got to work in their own form of warfare and encouraged by um, Virginia. What they did was they spiked the Germans' drinks. So when they fell asleep, they rifled through their... Um, uniforms and took photographs of any important documents, gave intelligence to um, Virginia. But they also had another form of warfare. And by the way, a lot of them were caught and were executed, and we will never know their names, and we will never be able to credit them. But we shouldn't forget that courage can be found in lots of different places. The other thing that they were doing is another of Virginia's lieutenants, Dr. Rousset, the doctor to um, the brothel, would give them white cards. On the white card, it would denote that a fille de joie, a prostitute, was free of infection when she was nothing of the sort. So she would sleep with as many germs as she could while she dared, before she got treatment herself, to put them out of combat. One boasted of having put 28 German officers um, made, him, made them so ill that they were, you know, out of action for a long time. This is biological warfare, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> that you may not have heard before, but I can tell you it was effective. Okay, 
It wasn't all nuns and prostitutes. There were lots of other people too. The local police chief she recruited, well, that was a smart move because he tipped her off a lot about what the Gestapo were up to and the police officers in the French service who were collaborators in helping the Gestapo. Um, he, she... Um, recruited uh, businessmen, railway workers, town hall workers who could help her create um, uh, false papers. So gradually she was recruiting more and more people. Each time, of course, any of those people could have been collaborators or indeed Gestapo stooges. She took a risk, an insane risk, every time she recruited someone. She had to rely on her sixth sense, which turned out, with one exception, which I'll get on to, to be very, very astute indeed. And these people put their lives on the line for Virginia, a foreign woman they knew nothing about every day. Imagine the force of character that could persuade people to do that. It really is amazing. Her other line of business, so she was setting up these networks. These networks were going to be the nucleus of the great resistance armies later on. That's why they, they needed to be formed now. It was too early to do big sabotage now. They could only do small sabotage, like putting sugar in gas tanks to stop German cars moving, that kind of thing, because it was going to be years before the Allied armies were ready to come back onto continental soil. You couldn't have an insurrection without backup from them a professional army at some point. So at this point, it was a case of existing, of organizing, and of building, and of sending intelligence back. But there was one other thing that she did, apart from, of course, keeping the flame of resistance alive and persuading French people they could fight back. And this is what she did. She became the most spectacular prison break artist that's the right word. You've all seen The Great Escape. We all know that however brilliant a film and, and story it is, that most of those men never made it. They either got recaptured or they were killed. But we know all about it. Virginia's escapes were successful. In fact, in, in the official documents I found, it said after a uh, you know, a sort of investigation at the end of the war just to see how much she'd done. It said that many men owed their lives to Virginia Hall because she got them out of prison just in time before they were executed. If you were left in prison too long, you were executed. You were pretty lucky, you know, to last more than a few months before they did that. But there was one group of agents, 12 of them, who'd come in shortly after she had. They were essential, and really they were the only other agents at that point in France. But they all foolishly and against real basic security met in one building at one point. She didn't go, most likely because she realised that was a mistake, but these 12 guys did. They were caught. They were tortured. And they were put in a fortress, a stone fortress, that several people tried to get them out through bribes. A million francs was given to various guards. Nothing could be done. Eventually, after everyone else failed, they said to Virginia, any chance you've got any ideas? And she said, I will get them out unofficially if I can't get them out officially. 
So she went down to see the American ambassador, Admiral Leahy, who still had quite good relations with Vichy. And she said, it's embarrassing for America to have its allies incarcerated in this way. Imagine if these men die through maltreatment. They've done nothing wrong. Don't you think that you'd like to use your influence to at least get them moved to a less unsalubrious prison? Somehow, he managed to do that. So they got moved to Mozak here in the Dordogne. So Virginia said, thought, OK, I'm going to jump the guards on their transit. I will, you know, rescue them. That's a good time to get them away. But then she heard that they were so weak from malnutrition and disease, they could barely walk, let alone run. They were in chains, and the guards had been ordered to shoot anyone who came anywhere near. So clearly this wasn't going to work. So she was going to have to do it when they arrived at Mozak, this camp here, which was surrounded by barbed wire and watchtowers and armed guards. It was no picnic. It might have been outside, but it was going to be very difficult. But gradually she came up with a plan. The plan included, for example, a priest with no legs. A priest with no legs decided that he would definitely need to go and um, administer to some of the prisoners. And so he was wielded on several occasions. On about the fourth or fifth occasion, he said to the SOE agents in there, lift my cassock and you will find something to your benefit. So they lifted the cassock and there was a radio set underneath it that Virginia had supplied. So now they had a way of communicating with the outside world. And in fact, when they heard a guard talking about a new arms factory just down the road, they signalled London with the coordinates, and two days later the RAF came over and bombed it to smithereens. They admitted it was quite fun to be still helping the war from inside a prison camp, but they couldn't use the radio set too often because there would be radio wave detector vans. So there had to be another way of getting messages in and out. So they came up with these tubes of aspirin, which is how apparently they sold them in those days, and they started to throw them each way over the barbed wire, so messages out, messages in, as to what they needed. So word got to Virginia, who didn't ever come to the camp itself, she was too well known, as to what they needed to get out. The idea would be they wouldn't dig a tunnel, none of them had the, kind of, the skills. They would cut their way through the barbed wire. But first of all, they had to get out of their hut, they'd use a key. So... She persuaded one of their wives to take a tin of tomatoes, a particular tin of tomatoes, to her husband. They were allowed to take in um, food at various points. The tin was chosen not for the lovely tomatoes, but because the metal was particularly good. It was thick, but it was also pliable, but not too pliable. Excellent for a key. She then smuggled in a file in a jam jar, some, uh, a hammer and some pliers and cutters, small ones, tiny ones really, in a hollowed out book that was also allowed. And the priest said, well, why don't I bring in some paint and you could spruce your, your hut up, that would be good for morale, but actually the paint was not for that. They were worried that if they managed to get the door open, the guards would notice, so they, they painted a replica door on a rag and pinned it up just out of sight so that it could be dropped very quickly. She got a doctor, Dr. Rousset's friend, to bring in a sleeping draft, um, insisting that one of them needed, needed this for their health. So gradually, gradually, I won't tell you all the details, they are pretty amazing though, they got together the required tools. 
and one of them started to make the key. So every night, all the men had to sing at the tops of their voices to drown out the sound of hammering and chiseling and all the rest of it. They got their key, and then the day was chosen. It had to be a particular day when the moon wasn't too bright or too dark so that they could see what they were doing but wouldn't be too obvious. They bribed a few guards to um, help, which they did. One of them got the chief guard very, very drunk. That rather helped. And then on the day itself, there was going to be a signal. If a man walked past with three children at four o'clock, the operation was off. But if a woman walked past with three children at four o'clock, it was on. It was actually a few minutes after four o'clock when a woman walked past. So the, the operation was on. Now, quite a few other things went slightly awry, but they were all got out. There was a van waiting in the woods. It took them quickly to another place, waited for another couple of hours, and then they walked through forests to a farmhouse that she had identified, no roads to it, where they hid for two weeks until all the fuss died down. There was a huge fuss. Hitler himself got involved because they knew they had just lost 12 agents. They knew that they had been made fools of. There were guards on every bridge, every railway station, every port but they hid out in this forest and then um, Virginia smuggled them into Lyon which was her base and then in twos and threes over the mountains in Spain and got them home every single one got out survived and got home and here they are but no one's heard of this escape no one's heard of Virginia Hall she was um, so good at this that she was put up for the CBE, commander of the British Empire, um, which is the second highest um, honour, really, after a damehood. Um, very, very unusual for an American. But the problem was that she was still in the field, so the citation couldn't actually say anything. It just said this woman's been very brave and very good. And so she was turned down, I'm afraid. She never got that. In the meantime, she was still, um, let me just tell you about a couple of agents that she was recruiting. So these are the Bourne brothers. They were comedians and acrobats and trapeze artists before the war. They used to tour all the theatres. It wasn't their real name, that was their stage name. They used to tour the theatres of, of Europe. Um, lovely guys, very um, doting on their families. Towards the beginning of the war, they sent their families home to Britain on a ship. Their wives, their children and their parents and it was a passenger ship, but a German U-boat torpedoed it, and they were all killed. Well, as you can imagine, these guys were never the same again, and they signed up with Virginia and did a lot of very brave things for her, dressing up as Gestapo and some of her other prison breaks, all sorts of things. They were, I'm afraid, eventually captured by the Gestapo and put in a concentration camp where they very nearly died, but they did survive, although they, not for that long after the war. But they were very, very brave men. It's interesting, isn't it, that agents aren't what you think. The best ones don't tend to be the ones that you think will be um, best. The, 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 they were not particularly macho, but they were very, very brave. This is Dennis Rake, an absolute character. He had been a child tumbler in a circus from the age of three. 
His mother was an opera singer who had abandoned him, so the circus had brought him up. He hated any loud noises. He particularly hated guns, but he was one of the most coldly courageous people you can ever imagine. Just to give you a few ideas, so the Gestapo were after him at one point. He was working for Virginia. Um, so he jumped on a train as it slowed um, to go round a bend and, bend and hid in the fuse box. Another time... He was arrested and caught. He escaped from prison in a stinking um, garbage pail with the aid of a priest. Another time he was arrested, he had incriminating papers on him. So he went to the lavatory, tore them up, put them in the pan and tried to flush. They wouldn't go down. The Gestapo were banging on the door. The door was going to collapse any moment. So he did, I'm afraid, as he put it, with a silent prayer, scoop them up and eat them. I don't think it was a very nice lavatory either, not like one at the Athenaeum. So it might have been for that reason or for another that he got dysentery. He was very, very ill. Dysentery was common, though, I can tell you, in the Second World War. So the Gestapo were after him, the Vichy police were after him, the Abwehr were after him, and he had dysentery. No one would help him. There was only one person who would, and he knew that. And he went to her door, and, of course, Virginia rescued him, got him out of France, through Spain, and back to Britain. He said after the war that she was one of the greatest agents ever. He went on another mission later on and won the MC, the Military Cross, the second highest military medal in, in Britain. But he couldn't get work. See, the problem is with these agents, they weren't prepared to tell anyone what they did during the war. And everyone therefore thought he must be a bit shady. Because who would believe that someone, frankly, who looks like an old-fashioned grocer, had done all these extraordinary things? And so he was unemployed and almost destitute until... Sammy D Davis Jr. came along, who made him his butler, and described him in a book that Dennis Rake um, wrote after the war as a shortened, rounded, jovial version of Jeeves. So, you know, again, quite an exceptional person. But then... Oh, sorry, I should tell you about Marcel Lecher, a wonderful Frenchman who probably the closest she had to confidant, he put his life on the line endlessly for her, did some of her most dangerous operations in trying to free prisoners, you know, smuggling files into prisoners' uniforms, all sorts of things. I'm afraid he was captured by the um, Gestapo, he was put in a concentration camp, and he was executed. And this was something she never, ever got over. She had recruited him. He was a few years younger than her. She called him her nephew and he used to call her auntie. It was their kind of little joke. And the fact that he was lost, idealistic, very patriotic, but wonderful sort of internationalist, wanted to work with this American woman he knew virtually nothing about. And I'm afraid he didn't make it and he had only just got engaged. This is something, many things, that haunted her for the rest of her life. As did this guy. Okay, this guy is evil, okay? He is the double agent you've probably never heard of, but was one of the most successful of the war. His name was Robert Alesh. He was a priest. There are a lot of priests and prostitutes in this book, sorry. Forgive me. It's just the way it kind of goes. Okay, he's not in priest clothing here because he's at his trial after the war, where I'm pleased to say he was convicted. 
But we're going to go back into the war now, where he infiltrated himself into her network. People trusted him because he was a man of the cloth. He was taking confession from young, youthful members of the resistance at his parish in Paris, and then the next day selling them to the Gestapo. Through them, he started to find out about Virginia because every single resistance person in France pretty much knew about her because she was a problem solver. She got them out of jail, she got them radio sets, she got them food, she got them shelter. So gradually, this guy here was working his way towards her, getting closer and closer. And by now, he knew her code name and he knew where her headquarters were. And he went to see her with what looked like fantastic intelligence, but in fact had been doctored by the Germans. She had doubts. She signaled London, I'm not sure about this guy. Maybe he's a phony, but he keeps coming with fantastic intelligence about the coastal fortifications, except it wasn't. It looked great. It wasn't. It had been doctored. Gradually, the net was closing in. It was clear she was in huge danger. She kept refusing to come, come back to Britain. In the end, she knew she had to. But there was only one way out by this point, because the Gestapo were closing in so fast. And that was over the Pyrenees, in one of the worst winters for 200 years, over the highest pass, because no one would think that anyone in their right mind would go over that pass. And that was the only way that she was going to be able to escape, because they were this close to her at this point. This is with Cuthbert. Obviously, I mean, for us, it's hard enough. I know someone who did part of that pass in May, an able-bodied man who said it practically killed him. He only did probably a third of it. She did it in November in heavy snow with Cuthbert after 14 months of semi-starvation because there was so little food in France. She had a passeur or guide who took her over. She couldn't tell him about Cuthbert. She couldn't let on for a second these were hard-bitten guys. They did not want to get caught themselves by the Gestapo. If they thought you were going to slow them down, they had a solution, which was push you in the ravine or shoot you in the back of the head. So she had to keep up with him. Even though she could not flex her ankle, she had to climb sideways. That was the only way. And just um, claim it was because she had a heavy bag. Halfway over, they stopped in the shepherd's hut, and in her heavy bag was a radio transmitter. And she transmitted London saying, um, it was an understatement, Cuthbert is being tiresome, because Cuthbert at this point was falling apart. The rivets were working loose. The duty officer um, working that night didn't know who Cuthbert was. A lot of them did. So he signaled back, we'll have Cuthbert eliminated. But, you know, <laughs> slight misunderstanding there. By the way, there are points where she had had that instruction and had had to carry it out, although we have no step-by-step um, -step report of that because that's not the kind of thing you write down when you're a secret agent. That I did see signals where she said, I need more pills. Is that what she called them? So we know that she had become quite a warrior by this point. Anyway, um, to cut a very long story short, she got over the Pyrenees. She was captured. Another prostitute managed to help her get out of prison. She got back to Britain. The Brits said, there is no way ever you're going back to France. Every Gestapo officer knows you. This transmission has gone out saying, all oh, the most dangerous allies by. Uh, we must find and destroy you. Everyone's got a picture of you. They know your name. They know you limp. You're not going back. So what did she do? Come back to the States for a quiet life? No. 
She went to work for the OSS, the American version of SOE, and just kind of admitted to tell them, you know, her little problems with the uh, Gestapo. But she couldn't go back looking like Virginia, evidently. She harked back to her, her youth on the farm. She decided that she would go back disguised as a milkmaid. So she employed Hollywood um, makeup artists to teach her how to draw wrinkles onto her face, so to make herself look about 30 years older. She wore about six skirts at the same time to make herself look much stouter than she was, and she went to a really ferocious London dentist, scary this, to get her fine white American teeth ground down so that she looked like a peasant woman. She went the full way. Now, we're now 1944, so we're leading up to D-Day. So things have changed. It's not just about forming networks anymore. It's about forming armies. And that's what she wanted to do, even though she looked like a milkmaid. So initially, she was collecting intelligence, because she could loiter around, listening to Germans' conversations. She'd learnt German during her university years. And then at night, she would transmit back this intelligence. Some of it was so good that the American army described it as vital and pivotal in their campaign to liberate France. It gave them an idea where the German army was, that it could be cornered to the west of Paris and enable the um, US armies to, uh, Allied armies to go into Paris. But she was also calling in parachute drops to arm the local Maquis. She organized them, trained them, armed them, and on occasions directed them. One signal I saw from um, a lieutenant who was working with her described her as organising one particular sabotage mission as if it was a Sunday school picnic. She did it with humour and um, but complete calm authority. She was then given her own command in the Haute Loire. I don't know whether any of you have ever been there. Quite a remote part of, of southern France, a high, high plateau. Um, this was, uh, had suffered greatly at the hands of the Germans. A lot of the farms had been burnt. People had just been killed at random. And it was of particular interest, although the Allies didn't know this at that point, but that every single farm on that plateau was hiding a Jew. And now, often children, now that plateau, and the village in particular, is the only one in France to have the righteous amongst the nations um, honour from the state of Israel. It was an exceptional place, but the problem was they had no arms. They literally had broom handles. That's all they had to fight with. Virginia arrives and said, I'm going to sort this. And my goodness, she did. 22 parachute drops, big Halifax bombers coming over, dropping pounds and pounds and pounds of guns, ammunition, explosives, and chocolate. Very important. More benzedrine and special socks for Cuthbert that helped her. Um, by this point, she'd abandoned her milkmaid disguise and she was dressed as a guerrilla leader. And that is what she was. She got um, vets, schoolboys, farmers, booksellers to train as guerrilla fighters. She trained them how to use the explosives that were being dropped, how to use the guns. This was one of them. This is the last of what became known as the Diane Irregulars, Diane being her code name by now. He was called Gabriel, and he was 17 when um, he fought alongside her. He died in 2017, just before I got to meet him, unfortunately, the last of them to survive. But his widow is still very much alive, and the whole room, the biggest room in her house, is like a shrine to her husband and the Diane Irregulars and Virginia. In fact, Virginia is a legend 
legend to this day on that plateau. When they talk of her, they always use this expression, les étoiles dans les yeux, stars in their eyes. Because Gabriel here, and many others, and I found their letters in this dusty old archive in, in Lyon, wrote to each other after the war saying, and she was only with them for two months, that it had been worth being born just to have met Virginia Hall and work alongside her. So she trained them and showed them what to do and how to, um, you know, try and drive the Germans out. This is the sort of thing they got up to. So she trained them to lay the explosives on the bridge. She couldn't do it herself. She couldn't climb the bridge with Cuthbert. That was something she couldn't do. To blow the bridge up, she then instructed them to hijack that, that train, throw the driver off, who was a collaborator, then steam it up, um, until it was, it was going at full speed. Um, and then just at the last minute, they'd identified a nice soft bush they could throw themselves out of the cab into so that it would slam <clears throat> into the bridge, as you see here. That would maximise the damage. What her plan was to isolate the German garrison in Le Puy, she'd identified and told the Allies that the Germans in that part of France had now gone there as opposed to Lyon, so it was necessary for it to be isolated. So she did this kind of thing, organised convoys of ambushes, cut their phone wires, and eventually captured the Germans and pushed them out of the entire Haute-Loire. And ladies and gentlemen, that was one of the first parts of France to be liberated outside Normandy, where the Allies were still bogged down in bitter fighting with the Germans. And Germans were coming through this area to try and get up to Normandy as reinforcements, and they, their job was to stop them. But with that ragbag army of vets, doctors, booksellers, schoolboys, farmers, and without a single professional soldier, the Allied troops are hundreds of miles away, they cleared that entire department. Well, I found a signal from a, a senior officer, rather understated perhaps in, in the way of things, saying, extremely brave woman in Haute Loire doing fine work. Well, yeah, <laughs> kind of. So that, that's what she did. And after that, that still wasn't enough. She wanted to go on and find some more Germans to deal with. So here she is with a small commando group that left the plateau to go and look for more Germans. But actually by this point the war was rolling away from them. So they stopped at this chateau for an evening. And just behind that photo, you can't quite see him, is an American officer who had just been parachuted in to help her. All those weeks when she'd been commanding all these French people by herself, a sole woman, American woman, with hundreds of Frenchmen who didn't know who she was, it was difficult at times. She had no backup. Only when the fighting finished did finally these two guys get parachuted in. One was called Paul. He was seven years younger than her, six inches shorter, her junior. He took her orders, he watched her back, but he also made her laugh. And now that the war was kind of moving on, this chateau had a beautiful lake with a lovely boat on it. And that night, she and Paul, her first lover since Emile back in Vienna, since her accident, everything that had happened to her, she couldn't afford to have boyfriends when she was in the field and undercover. But finally, she and Paul got it together at Rossia, the chateau that you can see here. And I'm very glad she did, because she jolly well deserved it, I really think. <laughs> The other thing 
she deserved was a medal, quite clearly. And, you know, great excitement about giving it to her. She was the only civilian woman in World War II to be awarded the Distinguished Service Cross. President Truman himself wanted to give it to her in the White House. It was a big old deal. But Virginia wrote back saying, Dear Mr. President, where's the effect of? I'm afraid I really can't do this because I want to remain a secret agent. And if there's any publicity, I want to get busy and it will stop me doing what I need to do. So she got her... Um, her medal from Wild Bill Donovan, who was the chief of the OSS in his private office. Um, funny enough, Paul, although she, he came back to America with her, wasn't there. Barbara didn't approve of him. He was not the eligible young man that she had hoped for her daughter, Virginia. He was a chef by background from a modest family, and he was kind of persona non grata. So the only witness to this ceremony, apart from Well Bill himself, is Barbara, her mum. Paul did not attend. So Virginia and Paul moved to New York to be, you know, out of Barbara's eyesight. Because the really funny thing is that Virginia wasn't scared of the Gestapo. She wasn't scared of the Vichy police. <laughs> she wasn't scared of much, but she was that little bit scared of her mum. So, uh, you know, she kept it quiet for years and years and years. I mean, eventually they did get married, but not for a long time because she knew that Barbara didn't approve. So here we have them. So this is, this is Virginia. Um, with Paul towards, you know, after she retired from the CIA, where she had a sort of up and down time, really. They did get on. They were a good match. Um, they had a lot of happiness together, and he was with her until she died. They didn't have children. She couldn't. I mean, she'd done too much to her body during the war, those benzedrine, all, all that stress. It wasn't possible. But they were this wonderfully happy couple for, you know, a couple of decades, really, until ill health really sort of made her life a little bit miserable. But I, I give you just a little taste of Virginia's life. There's so much to tell you. I couldn't believe, you know, just how much. I mean, every page, I think, gives you a twist and a turn in her story. I really want to tell the world about her. I think she deserves more attention. She is a truly great American that you should really be proud of. Thank you for lending her to us for a while, because, you know, <laughs> she did a lot for us. Thanks very much.